into darkness to save the world. We thank you, Father God, for this opportunity to adore you uh, through singing and through praying. And I pray, Father God, that as your people, Lord, that you would continue to allow us to worship you with sincerity and truth, to worship you, Father God, because you alone deserve worship. I pray, Father God, that you will allow this sermon and this time to be Christ-centered. Exalt your son, Father God. Glorify him. Make him famous in our hearts, Father. Tear down anything that would block us from seeing him, O oh God. I pray, Father God, that you would heal us today from wounds, things that maybe we're not dealing with, things from the past, O oh Lord, that is slowing us on our Christian walk. Give us hearts, Father God, that are merciful, hearts that are quick to forgive, Father God. Hearts, O oh Father God, that are consumed with your spirit. I pray, Father God, that you will give us the attention spans that we need, Father God, to, to focus on your word. We, Father God, stay in a very fast society, Lord, and, and we're, we're, we're quick, Father God, to change channels and change directions, but may you settle our hearts at this moment and allow us to be stewards of this time well. Eliminate any distraction. Bring healing through your word. I thank you for this, your people, who are peculiar, who are holy, who are yours. And for those who are not you, Lord, I rejoice because I believe that today you're going to draw someone closer to you who don't know you and that you're going to allow that seed to be water and bring them to faith. Rip away our idols and exalt your son in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Recently, I saw on Facebook that an old friend that I know was invited to the White House for a special event that would take place a week later. And she didn't have the funds to go, but rather than allowing that to stop her, she made a creative fundraising plea and quickly raised the money. And that got me to thinking, with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity Besides sickness and financial inabilities, what would be a reason for someone or even for myself to not go to the White House? Is there a lot of reasons or excuses that one would pass up spending time with President Obama and his family? And as I began to contemplate and to think about these things, I said, there's not a, a whole lot of reasons. If most of us were given the opportunity to spend some time at the White House with the first family, we would do everything we could to make it. This holiday season, as we are being invited to Christmas parties and enjoying family gatherings, I want us to reflect upon a story that Jesus told about a great invitation that was given out for a great banquet and how people responded. If you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 15 through 24, today we're going to look at this great invitation. Luke chapter 15, 14, excuse me, verse 15 through 24. Luke 14, 15 through 24. What you hold in your hand is not a self-help book. It is the very word of God. We praise God that God has spoken to us clearly through his word. It is without error, it is powerful to make one whole, and the precious, authentic, sufficient, and erring, majestic, marvelous word of God reads. 
when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet, a great banquet, and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways of the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You may be seated in the name of our Lord. So today we're looking at Jesus as he tells a a parable. A parable is a small story that carries big truth. It is a small story that carries big truth. As we look at the backdrop of Jesus telling this parable, we find out in chapter 14, verse 1, that it was, the, it was a Sabbath day, a day of rest, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. So on a Sabbath day, Jesus goes and he's hanging out with the ruler of the Pharisees. And according to chapter 14, verse 1, the Bible says that the Pharisees were watching him closely. They were watching Jesus closely because he was a great threat to them. Jesus had a sincere, genuine, and transforming relationship with the Father, and quite frankly, they didn't. His miracles, sermons, and and mere presence both convicted and embarrassed the Pharisees. His ministry was not a ministry of mere talk, but it was a ministry that demonstrated the very power of God. So they watched him closely and jealously. They watched him closely hoping that he would make a fatal mistake that would allow them to discredit his ministry and even execute him. There were a few who watched him closely because they were interested and they were experiencing salvific faith, but most of them watched him closely out of pure hatred. And we see leading up to this parable that Jesus has been teaching a a few lessons. The first lesson that he uh, taught from verse 14 to verse 6 was a lesson about compassion and mercy. And he taught this lesson by healing a man on the Sabbath day by having mercy on a man on a day of rest. The second lesson that he taught leading to this story is a lesson of great humility. He was trying to teach the Pharisees on what it means to be a humble servant of God and and how we are not to seek 
praise from men and, and seek to exalt ourselves before the presence of others, but rather to humble ourselves before God so that we would be exalted. He also taught humility in that he was teaching the Pharisees to invite broken people and people who are outcast into their home and serve them rather than serving people who can serve them in return. So we get to verse 15 when we read these words. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed, happy is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It seems like this exhortation and this call would be one that would get an amen from Jesus. But instead of an amen, Jesus goes into a parable because he knows the heart from which this statement has come. See, Jesus is and, and didn't just listen to people and accept what they said, as we have to do because we're merely human. Jesus is the God-man, fully human yet fully divine. Mind-boggling, I know. But he was able to know the intent in which someone said it and the heart by which someone spoke. And he knew that this Pharisee, in making this comment, this comment was coming from a heart of a person who was, an exclusive, was, was into exclusive theology, meaning that this Pharisee and this Jew who spoke up, when he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, what he really is saying, blessed are those who are Jewish, who will one day eat bread with the Messiah. His perspective of salvation, Jesus knew, was a perspective that said that only devout Jews would be saved by the Messiah and receive his blessings. But not only that, Jesus is about to tell this parable in this way because this man had a picture of the kingdom of God that said that the kingdom of God was only futuristic. He is saying blessed or happy is the person one day who will sit down with the Messiah at a great banquet and eat bread with him. But Jesus has to address this because this statement went directly against what Jesus' ministry stood for and what he had been teaching. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, the Bible says, after John the Baptist had died, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was preaching and was the good news, the gospel to people. And part of that good news was, was that the kingdom of God was here. It was present in him. It was both now and future. So Jesus is getting ready to address this man's attitude and the attitude of the Pharisees with this story of this great banquet. The word of God goes on and it says in verse number 16, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And he puts emphasis on a great banquet. And at that, the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, what we want to understand as we go forth is this. 
In Jewish culture, the way that this would work, if this was a wedding or a great banquet, there would be a pre-invitation, and then there will be a second invitation which commits the banquet or the ceremony. Okay? So the first invitation would come out, and you would respond just like you do, do today, and you would say, I'm coming. And it would have been incredibly rude for you to give your word that you were coming to a banquet and not show up because the persons given the banquet literally put everything that they could into a banquet because your honor was at stake in this culture on how hospitable you were. So this first invitation to this banquet comes out. And now this man who's throwing his banquet is now giving a second invitation to people. Verse 17, and at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all had begun to make excuses. So even though they had said that they were coming, now they're making excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Again, this on the surface seems like maybe a good reason to miss. But Jesus is putting emphasis on that this is not a reason to miss. This is an excuse to miss. For no one back in the day in that culture bought a field without first meticulously looking at it to see whether or not that field was any good. This first person was making an excuse. And then he goes on. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. Again, no one would buy five oxen without having them looked at. Somebody say, this is an excuse. Right? This is one of those excuses. The dog ate my homework, right? Okay? It's not a reason. It's an excuse. But then we see a third excuse. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And this seems like a good reason, especially if one understands the Old Testament law, because within the Mosaic law, there was a provision and a protection for newlyweds that said that newlyweds were not uh, allowed or or encouraged, I should say, to go on business trips, trips once they got married. And they also, a newlywed husband was not supposed to fight in the army. He was supposed to take a year off in order that he would be able to grow uh, in his relationship with his bride. So on the surface, it seems like a reason, but again, Jesus has already said that this is an excuse. Nowhere in the law did it prohibit newlyweds from going to a social event like this. So Jesus is building this up, saying that there are some excuses being given why people cannot come to this banquet. And he uses three excuses, but early on in the parable we see that this was pretty much everybody was making excuses. Everybody was saying why they couldn't come to this great banquet. Well, what is this representing and what is this talking about? This is a picture of Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel was told that the Messiah was coming and they were to be ready for him. But the Bible says when Jesus came into human history and put on human clothes that they were not ready for him. They rejected him. They made excuses. 
When Jesus came, instead of Israel repenting and rejoicing and accepting him, they said, these are the reasons why you can't be the Messiah and these are the reasons we can't come. And in essence, what they were doing is they were rejecting the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, when you read it in the Bible, is simply a way of saying life with God under his rule and care. They were rejecting life with the one true triune living God. They were rejecting his rule. They were rejecting his care. They were making excuses. God's people, the one that he called out of darkness, Abraham's seed. The one who was supposed to be able to recognize the Messiah, make excuses for why they cannot follow him. Jesus is the banquet and the meal that Israel was supposed to be most excited about and waiting for. And Jesus is revealing the hearts of the Pharisees and showing that their heart is not kind and is not well towards God. Even though they think that they're just rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God because Jesus is God and Jesus is God's son. And he came to reveal the heart of the Father to them. God desired to save him. In Jesus, God prepared a meal for him. Jesus is the bread that they longed for or should have longed for. He is the water that quenches our thirst and that satisfies us. He is the lamb that satisfies our hunger. But Israel rejected them. In verse 21, we see these words. Jesus says, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants. So the master of the house is representing God the Father. And we see that he said that the master of the house is angry. God the Father, when we think about God, we have to think about God as we're creating his image. God is a God of emotions. And a lot of times we like to think about the positive emotions of God. Emotions such as his love or his peace or the joy that he brings. But when we think about negative emotions, we say, no, that's not really God, or that's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. This banquet host had every reason to be right because he was being hospitable and generous and and rolling out a red carpet for these people so that they could be satisfied, but they lied to him and they denied him, so the Bible said he is angry, and so is God heartbroken when we do not accept his invitation. And when Israel, his people, the apple of his eye, rejected the banquet that he laid out for them. But God is missional, and all along God had a plan. While Israel thought that that plan was centered only on them, God the whole time had a plan to redeem the whole world. Our God is a missional God. So look how Jesus relates in his parable, and look what he says. He continues, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the cripple and the blind and the lame. And the servant says, Sir, 
what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. So Jesus gets his service together. He says, the people that I originally tended to be at this banquet, they're not coming to this banquet. Let's not waste time. Let's go out into the streets and let's find people. In fact, don't invite the people who are rich. Don't invite the people who are Pharisaic, who say that we don't need food. You go and you find the people who are broken and you tell them that there is food here and I want to throw a party for them. And who does this represent? This represents the Gentiles. Jesus first in his ministry came to the Jews, to his own people. He ministered among them, but he was rejected. And then he took the gospel to Samaria, to the Samaritans. People whom the Jews did not like. This in this parable represents those who are poor, broken, blinded. He took the the gospel, the good news, to the prostitutes and to the outcasts of society. He hung out with tax collectors when Pharisees wouldn't hang out with them. He is showing them. He is God in the flesh. Emmanuel is among them. And he is saying God's heart is for people who need salvation and who recognize their need because of the grace that I have given them. The Pharisees saw themselves as rich. Those who are making excuses saw themselves as not needing the food of this great man who grew, who threw this great banquet. But Jesus is saying, these are the type of people that God rejects. Chapter 4, verse 11, going back, says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is attacking the attitude of these Pharisees. But look at this. He tells the servant to go out. The servant goes out. He says, everything you asked me to do, I have done. But there is still room. God is more willing to save than we give him credit. The problem is, There are more people willing to stay in their sin The problem isn't God's willing to save. It's that people are willing to stay in their sin to not come. Verse 23, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So he's already went out one. He's like, no, listen, go out to the highway. You stand in the midst of the highway and you compel people to come to this banquet. Go out to the hedges. Go out to the unexpected places. Go into the nooks and the crevices of culture and of this kingdom and you tell them to come. You compel. You make an argument. You don't force, but you do everything you can to convince them. Why? That my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He says, those who are proud and who exalt themselves and who says, I don't, I don't need God and I don't want to come to this banquet, are those who will be rejected, as he said with the Pharisees, those who are self-righteous Jews, he's saying, those are the people that God will reject from the kingdom. So what do we do with this passage as believers? This great invitation has went out from Jesus. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God has given an invitation to everyone who is here 
to find salvation in Jesus. God has given an invitation for a great banquet, one that is both now and yet to come. One can have a relationship with God under his rule and his care. Now one can feast off of Jesus and be satisfied. God is saying, put down your broken cisterns and drink of a well that will never run dry. An invitation has went out. Jesus once said, come to me, all ye who are laden and heavy labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. An invitation, my dear friend, beloved, goes out to you who does, who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, come and feast and be full. And what do we have to do? Number one, we have to accept the invitation. We have to accept the invitation. This banquet is a picture of God's grace. This man who puts, this host who puts on this banquet, he tells people to come and he doesn't charge them anything. Because their money is no good to him. He needs no money. He threw the banquet because he was wealthy and because he was rich. He did not need their help to supply. In the same way, when God offers us an invitation to come into his kingdom, to know Jesus, to come under his rule and to come under his care, he's saying, I don't want you to bring your good works. Your good works aren't good enough. Salvation is free. It is a gift from God. It is what we call grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ has paid the debt that you and I could never pay. Your righteousness would never please God because all of our righteousness is tainted with sinful motives and sin. You say, one day I'm going to go to heaven because I've done so many good things. God says, I don't care how many good things you've done. If you haven't accepted this invitation by repenting and turning and trusting Jesus, you will not be with me for eternity because your good works is an insult to me. The person who accepts this invitation is a person who, look at what Jesus says here, verse number 21, who sees themselves as spiritually poor, spiritually crippled, blind without God, and spiritually lame. Are you that way? Do you live with an attitude that says, God, I need you. I can't live without you. Jesus. I need you to take control of my life to be my Lord because I make bad decisions. Jesus, I need your blood to cover my sins because I'm guilt-filled and, and, and sinful. Do you recognize that you can't earn your salvation? If you think that you're going to be accepted by God according to your own good works and deeds, you are delusional. Without Christ, your best is not good enough. Your best deeds is tainted. You must become spiritually poor, cry out to Jesus, repent, turn from a life that is centered around you, turn from a life that finds pleasure in things that God hates, turn to God and say, God, I need you, 
I can't put these things down without you and trust them. There is some here who make excuse after excuse on why you can't follow Jesus. I once did. And we're like these people here. We think that we have good reasons for not following him, but in the eyes of this great host, he sees that these reasons are foolish. Some of us, we say we can't follow Jesus because we have to clean ourselves up. It's a foolish excuse because you can never clean yourself up. I would follow Jesus, but I, I, I work most Sundays. We're not talking about just com coming to church. That's not how one is saved. One is saved by putting their faith and trust in Jesus and by treasuring him. These men treasured everything else other than what the host was offering. You have to treasure Jesus above everything else. This next passage of Scripture, Jesus tells the uh, disciples that these words we see in chapter 14, verse 25, Now the great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to him, If anyone comes to me and does not ha hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was using shocking language here, and of course he wasn't advocating for hate, but what he's saying is that a person who accepts my invitation, they make me first in their lives. And it's such a distinction between the way they love me and the way they love nat their natural family that it's mind-boggling. Why? Because you see how generous God is as a host. Jesus ends his parable in verse 24 by saying, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. None of them shall taste heaven, come into heaven. In the same way is true, those who reject Jesus, they won't be in heaven. That goes for anyone who's under a different religion. Maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm Muslim, or I'm Buddhist, or I just believe all religions lead to God. There's only one way to God, and his name is Jesus. And anyone who, who has this smorgasbord of beliefs and who believes that at the end everyone is going to make it to heaven, you don't believe the Bible and you will be rejected. All roads does not lead to God. God. Only one road leads to God, and that is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But I see, I see religion as a, as a big mountain, and there's many ways up the mountain. As long as you make it up the mountain, you're okay. But the problem is the Bible teaches that the God, God is on top of that mountain. And he sent his son down that mountain, who paved a very specific way back up that mountain. And the only way back up that mountain is not through your good works and your deeds, but it's on the back of Jesus. It's trusting in his good works and his deeds. We are saved by works, but just not our own. We're saved by his works. There's a teenager here who says, and who really believes that the biggest nightmare that could happen to you is your parents finding out what you did or your friends rejecting you. But I come to tell you today that the worst thing that could ever happen to you is you passing up on this invitation to follow Jesus and you miss heaven and go to hell. Hell is a very real place. Jesus talks about hell more than he does about heaven. It is a literal place where people are right now suffering in immense torment, not because God is evil, but because God is good and because they chose to reject his goodness. 
Some say, well, I'll just wait till I'm a little older to follow Jesus. It's another excuse. The problem with that, if you have that mentality, is you think that salvation is accomplished by you. But it's not accomplished by you. Salvation is the work of God. God is the one who gives us a desire to, to, to worship him and to know him. He's the one who softens our hearts through his spirit. You can't turn it on and turn it off. God is the one who's in control. So when you hear this invitation, you, if you have not given your life to Jesus, you should run to God now while your heart is warm and fall to your face and fall to your knees and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, save me. Because the longer you go without Jesus, the harder your heart is becoming. Bible uses salvation. It talks about salvation as being born again. How many of you remember being born? Not because you saw pictures or you saw it on TV. How many of you can say, the reason I was born because I remember working and pushing myself out? No. You were born because your mother worked for you or because some doctor went in and got you. In the same way when we are born again, it is because God worked in us, and he came down, and he got us. Accept this invitation while your heart is still warm. God is a gracious host. He loves you enough to give his son in your place. Repent today. Turn and find joy in Jesus. Following God is not less joy and less fun and less happiness. Following God is more joy and more happiness, because in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. There's a man by the name of Wilbur, Wil, uh, William Wilberforce, and he's a man who God literally used to change the world. Wilberforce was a leading uh, abolitionist who ended slavery in Great Britain. He was a devoted Christian, but how he came to Christ is quite interesting. When Wilberforce was in his mid-twenties, he had already accomplished more than 10 men put together would. He was a, a famous political figure. He was being known across continents. He was an extremely smart guy. He was a social elite, that top 1%. And his mother got sick one winter. And he said, Mom, I've got to get you away or you're going to die because this air is too cold and too damp. So he took his mother and he took her cousin on a ride to Italy. They got in a buggy, and she was in, coach, in a, a nice coach buggy, and he was in another carriage. But he said, you know, since I'm going away for so long, I need to find someone to take with me. So he went and he started thinking, who's the smartest, most comedic person I know? So he went after a couple people. They said, I can't go. But finally he, fell, he, he ran into a guy named Isaac Wilner who most historians say was probably the smartest person in the world at that time. And they went on a road trip together. And Isaac was literally brought on to entertain <laughs> William Wilberforce. And they're talking about everything. They're talking about politics. They're talking about sports. They're talking about all these different disciplines. When all of a sudden, Wilner brings up his faith. And William Wilberforce, the man who God used, to bring an end to slavery in Great Britain, sat there confused as he said, wait a minute, you're educated. Wait a minute, you're a social elite. Wait a minute, you're famous. 
Are you telling me you actually believe the Bible? And he sat there stunned as Wilner defended his faith and what the Bible taught. And it was on that trip that William Wilberforce humbled himself before the Lord and put his faith and trust in Jesus. But in order to do so, he had to become poor, he had to become lame, he had to become crippled. In fact, when he went back to Great Britain, people began to say, something has happened to Wilberforce. There is a difference about him. He doesn't enjoy our social gatherings, and he doesn't find happiness in what we find happiness. That is because he accepted a great invitation, and accepting a great invitation will change you, and it will make you become alive to Jesus. And when you accept that invitation by faith and you give your life over to Jesus, God can use you to change the world. Second, those who haven't accepted the invitation, I beg you to do so. Second, for those who have, we want to look at this passage, and we want to be challenged to cultivate a heart of hospitality. Cultivate a heart of hospitality. Look at verse 13 and verse 14 in your Bible. In fact, I'm going to go up to verse 12. This is right before Jesus tells this parable. And he said also to the man who, he, who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the Pharisees, they will only invite great people to their parties with the hopes of being seen as great as themselves and with the hopes of people returning the favor. And we do this, right? We take someone out to eat because we know that next time they're going to take us out to eat, right? <laughs> well, this one's on you, but, you know, the next one. More media, right? Or we invite people over or invite people to areas of our life so that we can show off those areas and have people think great things about us. But Jesus is challenging the Pharisees. He says, no, true hospitality, God is, a hospital, uh, is hospitable, and he is our example of hospitality. He says, no, true hospitality is a gift, not an exchange. He says, if you all want to be righteous and to follow after the heart of God, invite people over who can't repay you, who you can't impress. Invite people over who need, who actually need food and who needs comfort. What is hospitality? Hospitality is the quality of treating guests and strangers in a kind, warm, and generous way. Hospitality is the Quality of treating guests and strangers in a kind, warm, and generous way. The word hospitality in the Greek literally means the love of strangers. And that's tough in our culture to, to think of loving strangers and, and, and loving people who we don't already have a relationship with. And sometimes it's tough to even reach out and be hospitable to people we do because we stay in a very consumeristic culture. I mean, the word of the year was selfie, <laughs> according to one major magazine. And y'all know what selfies are, right? It's the self-portraits that we, that we take of ourselves. It's hard to be hospitable when the only thing we see is ourselves. 
I'm not saying we can't take selfies. I enjoy a selfie every now and then myself. <laughs> Pastor Bishop, no, you don't. He knows I, I don't like technology. <laughs> every now and then, amen. <laughs> but there's just this focus in our culture on us. And as we remember Advent and as we remember Christmas, we want to remember we're celebrating God not focusing just on himself. Yes, he's always most concerned about his glory, but God focusing on those who were poor, crippled, lame, and blind. He focused on me and you enough to come into humanity. And even right now, Jesus is being hospitable as he is preparing a place for us in heaven. John chapter 14. God wants us to love strangers. Christian hospitality is motivated by God's love for us when we were strangers. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 through 34. And you may have this on the screen. Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34. Look at what the word of God said and God talked to Israel. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do them wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God told Israel to treat strangers, those who were just passing by, as they would treat family because, he says, you were once strangers. To me, you were once in bondage. You were in Egypt, but I was hospitable and that I was kind and generous towards you. I loved you enough to come into Egypt and to bring you out and to prepare a promised land for you. He says, now go and do likewise. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. Love the stranger, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. We're commanded to be hospitable. As God's people, Hospitality comes from reminding ourselves that God was gracious in adopting us into his family. This host was hospitable in that he invited people to come to a free meal. 1 Peter 4.9 says, show hospitality to one another. Here's a catch. Without grumbling. The challenge of hospitality both personally and professionally comes when we are stressed out or tired and we offer it grudgingly. The gift of hospitality comes when we find in the welcoming face of hospitality the welcoming face of God, Cornelius Plantinga. A lot of times we are grudgingly hospitable simply because we're just too busy. And our lives are too full. And most of the things we're busy and full about are things that really don't matter. They're luxuries, not necessities. We don't have to go to the mall every Saturday. We don't have to go shop every time we get paid. Our children don't have to be in every sport. You don't have to have a TV in every room, which means that you work every day. You don't have to talk on the phone every evening. 
We fail to invite people in and to be generous to them because we are too busy with things that don't matter. This is the heart of God. This is the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. True hospitality is a gift, not an exchange. We don't do it to glorify ourselves. We do it to glorify God. When we give to the needy and open our homes to people, we do it because we want them to feel the presence of God, to feel the love of God, not to see how great we are. Jesus and his disciples depended on hospitality of others during his ministry. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his hand. He was an evangelist going from town to town, and he depended on people being touched by God and opening their homes to him. It's an application of this text as we see this host. Not only do we want to accept the invitation, we want to be hospitable, and what keeps us from being hospitable is our insecurities. Some of us, we will never open up our homes to those who are less fortunate or even to members of our church because we are insecure about where we live. But the problem is we are far too impressed with ourselves. That just came back to a selfie. You just took a selfie. You said, I can't obey God because I won't look good in the process. My home's too small. Glorify God with your small home and your small apartment by making it a welcoming place. We have one place to sit and to lounge in our apartment. And as much as I'm insecure about that one place, by God's grace, we can invite people over and glorify him in that one sitting area. And you can too because it's not about us. God can rock a small apartment as well as a mansion. God can rock anything he wants to rock. He can rock the White House if he wants to rock the White House. We're too too impressed with ourselves. When we are insecure, we are looking more to the work of self than looking to Christ, and that is contrary to the gospel we receive. The gospel is all about looking to Christ and not to ourselves for salvation. And the same thing with hospitality. I want to encourage you all to open up your homes during this holiday season, December or January to someone that you would not have likely opened up your home to. Have you ever had a member of your church over in order to to love on them and to share Jesus and just to talk about Jesus and what he's doing in your life? That is a a wonderful experience, and we should be rushing to do that. We want to be a place where we are entering into each other's homes and getting to know each other. We want to be that type of church. But another application of this, as Jesus says, go out to the poor, to the crippled, to the blind, and to the lame. Another application is this, is as Christians, we should lead the way in orphan care. We should lead the way in opening up our homes to people who don't have homes. 
There are children, millions of children all throughout this world who don't have a place, a family to call a family and a place to call a home. And we, as people who have been redeemed by the gospel, should know how that feels as we were wanderers away from God, but God reconciled us to himself through Christ and he gave us a new family and a new home. We, as believers, are called, James chapter 2, to love the widows and to orphans, to love the disenfranchised, to love those who don't have a place to call home. I'm praying that God will raise up some believers in this place, some couples in this place, young and old, who will open up their home and say, I want to adopt an orphan, and who will adopt that orphan, love for that orphan, and who will preach the gospel to that orphan. And who says, I'm willing to give up retirement, I'm willing to give up my freedom, I'm willing to give up my couch, I'm willing to give up summers in Florida in order to give someone a home and food and Jesus. This man's heart, this host heart was for the broken. As believers, our hearts must be for the broken, but we have to stop taking selfies. There are 123,000 orphans nationwide. There are hundreds of orphans, hundreds of children who go to sleep every night right here in Louisville to coldness, to very impersonal relationships with staff members, to feelings of insecurities because they don't have a family member who loves them. Church, we're that solution. Let's be like this host Let's open up our homes and let's love them. Let's open up our homes to our neighbors this, this holiday season. Invite a neighbor into your home to have, have some dessert. It costs a lot of money. To have a dessert and just ask them questions about their life. And then ask them a questions about, what, what, here's some simple questions. What about Christmas excites you most this year? What gets you excited about the holiday season? That's an easy way to make a, a beeline to Jesus. If you're telling the truth and say, what excites me most about this time of year is that as Christians, we celebrate what God has done. Let me share with you what we believe. The last point, compel people to come. Not only do we want to accept the invitation, not only do we want to be hospitable, but we want to compel people to come. This great host told the servant, he says, go into the highway and the hedges and compel the lost to come. Why? Because this great host knows how much this blessing is going to bless people and how satisfied they're going to be. And he knows that this is satisfaction that's going to come his way. And he wants people to be satisfied. God wants people to be satisfied. He knows what he created them for. He created us for worship of him, to find, to glorify him, to find our identity in him, to find peace and joy and love. We were created to worship the one true triune, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we instead worship other gods that do not bring long-lasting joy and that do not bring peace and that cannot satisfy. And God saves the people out of this world who don't deserve to be saved. He calls them his sons. He calls them his servants. And he says, now you go and you get those people so that they can meet me and have everlasting joy. He says, and you compel them. You spend time with them. You talk to them. You pray for them. 
You ask them questions and you tell them what you believe and why you believe. But what stops us from compelling people to come? Come on, go ahead and say it. Selfies. I'm not smart enough. I don't know my Bible well enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not articulate. I'm not special. But God says, oh, if you would see yourself inside of my son, if you would accept this gospel identity that has been given to you, I see you the way that you really are. You are a peculiar person. You are a holy nation. You were once a person without mercy, but now you have received mercy, and you have been called to show me off. And I don't need you to tell them everything, but for goodness sake, tell them about the meal that I'm offering. <laughs> tell them about the, my son who is, is the bread of life. Tell them about my son who is, who is a, a drink of water that quenches your thirst. Tell them about his grace. Tell them about his peace. Tell them about his love. Tell them about his mercy. Tell them about how you love to sing to him. Tell them about how he saved you and redeemed you and changed you and is changing you. Tell them about his mercy towards you. Tell them about the new family that you have. Tell them about the hope that you have that one day he's coming back again and he's going to make all bad things right and he's going to wipe away every tear. Tell them about that day that you anticipate seeing him face to face and being immense in a triune glory. Tell them about a meal that you anticipate, that great banquet where God would set a table for his children who are poor, lame, weak, and crippled, but how he will make them whole and give them crowns and sup with them. He said, you, you tell them about that. God is a gracious host. We must accept the invitation. And if we've been redeemed, we must remember where we are and where we were as strangers and aliens, and we must show hospitality to others. And finally, we must take on our gospel identity as servants. God has called us to serve. We are the servants in this parable who has been called to go to the highways, to the hedges, and compel people to come, not the comfortable places. We hadn't... <laughs> Not the comfortable places, not the places we want to go. I'm sure that these servants knew this host and they knew the party that they, this host was going to throw. And I'm sure they were excited when they ran out. So the text said they ran out and they came back and said, we have commanded what you have said and people have come, but there's still room. And they were willing to go back out. He said, and he sent them back out and they went back out because they knew the host. When you know the host, you don't have to be pumped and primed to serve. Oh, but those selfies. Oh, oh, I would. I praise God for people in this church who taking upon that attitude of servant. Who week in and week out serve. Those who cleaned this building for the last year, stood up to a challenge and, and served and cleaned the church so that we can raise money for a new van. I praise God for you. I praise God for our deacons, our trustees, our ushers. I praise God for everyone who, who does 
anything in this church for the glory of God. Praise God for you. I praise God for those who came out to the Christmas party and served and who helped hand out things and who loved on children and who were hospitable, who opened up the doors of this church and, and just was so concerned about visitors. I praise God for you. I pray and I know that God will reward you. And I'm praying that God will raise up more people who are servants, who have been moved by the compassion and love of Jesus, and who doesn't just serve in church, but who serves outside of these walls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for truly it is good. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to... Uh,